Are you considering starting your own Qualified Opportunity Zone business or converting an existing business into a QOZB? Or perhaps you need a QOZB for your Qualified Opportunity Fund. This episode is for you. Find out more next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson, and this is part two of my two-part conversation with Ashley Tyson. Ashley's back here now for part two. He joins us today from his office in Charlotte, North Carolina. Ashley, welcome back. Thanks, Jimmy. It's a pleasure to be back on. Absolutely. So Ashley, uh, for the listeners who may have missed part one of our conversation, let's just get them caught up. This week, you and I are launching OZ Pros. For anyone interested in forming a qualified opportunity fund or qualified opportunity zone business, OZ Pros offers a simple document generation tool for quick and easy OZ fund and OZ business creation. And to learn more, you can visit ozpros.com. So Ashley, uh, part one, we tackled strategies for creating a qualified opportunity fund. And in part two today, we're going to discuss how to form a qualified opportunity zone business, which oftentimes a entity that sits downstream within the qualified opportunity fund. Is that correct? Correct. And, you know, because of the 90% rule at the fund level and the 70% rule that's offered to the QOZB, it, usually most structures are going to be structured to where you have a drop down QOZB underneath the QOF. And in kind of real estate parlance and or private equity parlance, we call it the, you know, the operating limited partnership vehicle. And, you know, typically most of them will have a drop down LP underneath that actually does the development or actually does the business operations. So that's what we're talking about in this case. Right, right. Can you go into a little more detail on, on what the 90% and the 70% rules are for those who, who may not be familiar with, with what you're talking about exactly? So for, in order for a, a, a fund to be a qualified opportunity fund, it has to have 90% of its assets in qualified opportunity zone property, which can either be actual real property that has met either the substantial improvement test or that is new use, or it can be uh, stock or uh, partnership interest that is newly issued after December 31st, 2017. And uh, that is uh, for a qualified opportunity zone business. And so if you look at that, uh, a qualified opportunity zone business, the definition of that is that that business has to have 70% of its assets in qualified opportunity zone business property, which once again, can either be uh, you know, new use or substantially improved real property, or 70% of its physical assets that would be like furnitures, fixtures, and equipment, or leasehold interest have to be inside of an opportunity zone. And it, can, it doesn't have to own property, so it can do it under a lease. And so there's lots more flexibility at the QOZB level than there is at the QOF level. And then by combining the two entities, so to speak, the fund has to hold at least 90% of its assets in a qualified opportunity zone business. And then that underlying business has to hold at least 70% of its assets in 
qualified opportunity zone business property, I mean, you kind of multiply those two numbers together, you get 63%, right? And that's that's kind of a much lower barrier, much lower hurdle to to leap over as opposed to 90%. So yeah, so yeah you're absolutely right. It makes it a lot more, a lot more flexible. Yeah. And it also, so interestingly, the, the reporting requirements that actually have to be done at the certification level actually happen for the qualified opportunity fund as well. And it needs to show on that 8996 how it has 90% of its assets in qualified opportunity zone property. And if you have a drop down QOZB, it's really easy to show that. And you know, you're going to want to keep some cash at the QOF level to pay expenses and that kind of thing. But you're ultimately going to want to be deploying a majority of that cash into the QOZB that's actually going to make, be making a return on that cash. And so it does. It gives you... a um, not only does it give you that 63%, but it also makes the reporting a lot easier for purposes of filing that form. Now, like we discussed on the first episode, you still have to be able to show in your QOZB audit trail and in your compliance plan how you're complying with the rules of the Opportunity Zone program. And that's a lot more in-depth. But from a reporting standpoint that actually goes to the IRS, it's actually pretty simple when you have this structure in place. Right. Yeah. Form 8996 only collects that 90% asset test at the fund level. And then you're really only keeping track of the 70% asset test at the QOZB level internally. It's an audit trail uh, that you just keep internally in case the IRS ever comes calling and wants to see your books. Is that right? Correct. And you're going to want to make sure that that's tight. But at the same time, yes, you're correct. Good. Okay. okay so actually, let's back up for a second now. I want to I want to talk about um, the the very basics of forming a QOZB. In part one of our of our conversation, the previous episode in this podcast series, we discussed uh, the steps basically that you need to take in order to establish or form a qualified opportunity fund. W- what are the steps, or what's the process that one needs to undertake in order to set up a qualified opportunity zone business? Yeah, so I mean, it's pretty much going to be the same thing uh, between an uh, an LLC and a corporation kind of at that formation level is that you're going to end up filing paperwork with the state um, of where and I would recommend that you probably do that in the state where your project's going to be, unless you're going to be raising a significant amount of capital, at which point you're probably going to want to look at Delaware as the state of your organization or your incorporation. Uh, I think that from a best practices standpoint, that uh, the majority of people who are raising money and who are putting together deals, especially kind of in the operating business space and the venture capital uh, space of operating businesses, that typically they're accustomed to seeing funds and QSEBs set up in Delaware. Just got a lot more favorable laws that people understand, and they don't have to go through the exercise of trying to find local counsel in whatever state you're in. So once you file it and, you know, and, and the filing process is actually fairly simple other than, you know, some specific language that you need to have inside of the organizational documents, which we've done. And, uh, and then some also uh, specific language that you need inside of your, uh, your actual internal corporate documents as well that govern how you make decisions and that put limitations around the management. And so with that in hand, you, you, know, you do your thing. Um, if you are not raising capital, the, your, you know, your documentation is substantially easier. It's a fairly simple operating agreement or set of corporate documents, you know, your kind of standard 
um, consents and bylaws and that kind of thing that you have inside of a corporation. Um, and then it gets significantly more complicated as you raise money. So if you have, if you start with a base set of documents and most entities can do this, they can start with a, a pretty basic uh, LLC operating agreement or basic set of bylaws. Then as you go through your fundraising round, then those documents get morphed into the documents that are going to be acceptable for investors, in which would be an amended and restated operating agreement that then has a subscription agreement and or a, uh, you know, your corporate bylaws and all of the things that go into uh, a corporate uh, stock issuance in association with a capital raise. And all of these organizing documents are things that we can help get prepared for you at ozpros.com. Ashley, anything else you'd like to add to that? Absolutely. And so, but it would be the foundational set of documents, right? So it's the basic set of documents that you would use if you're not raising money or as kind of the starting point if you're just getting your fund off the ground. But if you're going to raise money, you're going to, the, the documents are going to ultimately get amended because your investors are going to want significantly more robust provisions in there with respect to what happens inside of your QOZB and your QOF. And so the, these are a, a great initial set of docs. And then, you know, we can certainly help you as you transition into kind of the more robust set of docs, which are going to be uniquely tailored to your individual situation. Right. Well stated. Is there ever an instance where you would recommend that a qualified opportunity fund hold qualified opportunity zone property directly, or should there always be this downstream QOZB? So there's a weird um, mix inside of the uh, of the statute and of the regs, and I think that they may end up tightening this up in the final regs. And I believe that this is the case that a QOF actually could own a SIN business because I think that the SIN businesses are only precluded at the QOZB level. So, but I think that for best practices purposes, that people need to shy away from the SIN businesses if they're looking at doing an opportunity zone deal at all. And that trying to get cute on ownership via the fund versus QOZB would probably not be uh, the best idea. Um, you know, maybe if you wanted to have just a single layer uh, at the QOF level, if it's a, a simple deal where you can you can qualify, that you may want to do that. But I, I just think that you're. I think it's going to be very few and far between. And I don't know that I can envision uh, a fact scenario and engineer that law school exam question in my mind where it would actually make sense other than maybe that sin business piece, which you probably shouldn't be doing anyhow. So Right. That, that sounds like a loophole that IRS will probably close shortly, quite possibly when they issue final regs here in the next uh, few weeks or, or, or whenever we may get them. I, I think they're soon. I think those final regs are coming soon, hopefully by the end of the year is what I'm hearing, but uh, might, might be a coin flip as to whether or not that, that uh, bears out that way or not. It, it actually probably wouldn't be bad for a lot of the funds that are out there right now for it to happen like January 2nd. So that that way, everybody gets their money in to hit that 2019 deadline. And certainly, if they're going to extend that deadline, then I hope it hits January 2nd. So that way, that deadline is actually valid for everybody that comes in. So everybody gets their money in, but then maybe it's extended another year for other folks that are late to the punch. But we've, we've, been, we've been joking around about that, that, hey, if it's taking this long, let's just go ahead and push till 2020, like January 2nd, 2020. 
Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's an interesting point. Um, so who who would want to form a qualified opportunity zone business? And uh, I guess the question I'm getting at is, can a can a qualified opportunity zone business get set up without having this um, this qualified opportunity fund entity riding on top of it? Can can someone just set up a QOZB outside of a QOF? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that are doing that. And so, um, and I've talked to a lot of people that are actually converting to a QOZB um, based upon the desire to be able to raise uh, outside capital from people and from existing funds. Now, if you convert to a QOZB, the founders and whoever owns the business right now don't get the downstream tax benefit. And so we've actually been able to, um, to, engineer some situations where we're able to structure it so that existing owners can kind of rework their uh, financial stack in order to be able to take advantage of it themselves. But typically you're looking at, uh, you know, a sale and an exit in, in order to be able to do that. But I, there's lots of people who are looking at um, you know, setting up as a QOZB in order to attract that QOF uh, and the fund capital that's out there or that's going to be out there. Um, but I would say that anybody that's starting a business, you know, should be really, really, really looking at the, if they have the ability to be able to operate and to comply with the regs of being an opportunity zone business that they love to look long and hard at doing it. And that's both from their own perspective and so if they want to actually, and if they have capital gains that they can use as a startup equity, or if they don't, go ahead and set up as a QOZB where they can receive outside capital from people that do have capital gains. So uh, yes, the answer, the, the answer to your question is yes. I think that people are definitely interested in forming and or converting to QOZBs um, in order to be able to attract and to, to take uh, qualified opportunity zone money. Gotcha. So the but the QOZB itself doesn't receive any tax benefit. It only uh, flows through the holding entity, which is the QOF. Is is that correct? So so essentially, by forming a QOZB, the benefit to me as a business owner is just a easier source of capital. Potentially, is is that is that the benefit there? Yeah, correct. So you know the there's in. The folks that um, that are set up to where they don't have a QOF structure kind of on top of them, where they've got investors already that have capital gains, you know, right, that they're trying to get into their business, um, but that are instead businesses that are trying to uh, or that want to be able to accept qualified opportunity fund capital, then that would be the case where they don't have to have their own QOF. But instead, they set themselves up as a QOZB so that that way they're eligible to receive funds from other qualified opportunity funds. But if they're, if they're interested in attracting capital that wants to participate in the Opportunity Zone program, that's the way that they do it is by either setting themselves up as a QOZB or converting to a QOZB. Got it. So talk to me about converting to a QOZB. Who is doing that? Are these owners of existing businesses in opportunity zones or are these uh, businesses who are considering relocating into an opportunity zone that may be coming from outside an opportunity zone or, or, or what is the situation there exactly with, with these QOZB conversions? 
Yeah. So the, the ones, the, the easiest ones are the ones that are outside that are moving into a zone. Because when that happens, for the purposes of that 70% test, all of the actual equipment that's there gets treated as a good asset is what we call it. And it, it goes towards that 70% test. Now, if you are existing in a in uh, a zone, an existing business in an opportunity zone, but you want to be considered a qualified opportunity zone business, you then have to look at your balance sheet and you have to figure out on that balance sheet, how much of that can we treat as um, previous property that was inside of a zone and that had already been depreciated? Because if it's already in a zone and it has been depreciated, that can't be, that doesn't get the new use qualification. And so you have to substantially improve that property. And it's very difficult within an operating business to substantially improve individual assets. So the way that the regs are written right now, it requires an asset by asset improvement. And so you'd have to look at your balance sheet and all of the different hard assets that you have, and then double the cost basis of each one of those. So for instance, each chair would have to be substantially improved, which is an impossibility, right? And so we think that the IRS is probably going to, in the regs, clarify that for operating businesses, that it's not necessarily on an asset-by-asset asset basis, and then instead it's on an aggregate basis. But right now, the way that we're handling it is, is that your existing assets, if you're in a zone, we treat those as what we call bad assets. We move those over into that 30% category. And then we look at if there's a way that you can buy or acquire 70% of either new assets or assets you're going to be moving from outside of the zone into the zone in order to satisfy the 70% test. And by the way, a new lease, uh, a capital lease for uh, like a real estate deal, uh, will qualify towards that 70% category. So the net present value of the aggregate value of that lease, of what you're going to have to pay for that, qualifies into your 70% category. So that was a long way of explaining that, which, as you can see, it gets fairly complicated pretty quickly about the different um, calculations that you do, but they're definitely doable. And so we're helping people with that regularly. And I know lots of other professionals that are helping people with this regularly. And so to the extent that people have questions about it, if we can't answer it, we can get them with people that can. But this is one of those areas that, you know, that unless it's a layup where it's very clear, like it's a startup or you're completely moving a company into the zone, that when you're getting into that existing business in a zone and you're looking at the 70-30 test, bad, good. You probably want somebody who knows what they're doing to help you with that. Got it. Okay. So a couple different options there. Just to recap what you just said, if I'm understanding you correctly, if if you're a new business, a startup going into an opportunity zone, that's pretty straightforward. That's really easy. If you're an existing business that is currently located outside of the zone and you're moving into a zone, that's pretty easy too. Uh, the issue becomes when you are an existing business currently existing inside an opportunity zone already, that's a little bit harder to figure out, but it's it's doable uh, with, with the right with the right expertise and, and know-how guiding you through it. Correct. In most cases, I can't, you know, sure. obviously there's probably going to be a couple that aren't doable, you know, 
Um, like heavy manufacturing that's very equipment intensive might be a little bit tough if they're already in a zone. But um, the lion's share of businesses, I would say, is it's a possibility that you could get it done. Sure. Uh, and, and the whole point being that you can then throw a QOF layer on top and defer some capital gains and, and receive all the other tax benefits, capital gain tax benefits that come along with being an investor in a QOF. Or you can shop around your QOZB to different QOFs and potentially raise some, some capital through that channel. Uh, gives, gives you one more capital raising tool, so to speak. Uh, I want to talk about uh, how to best structure the QOZB. And in part one of our conversation, Ashley, you and I discussed the best ways to structure a qualified opportunity fund. And I, I think we kind of landed on the point that in most cases, probably just an LLC partnership is the way to go. Is that the case also at the QOZB level? Or do you recommend a different structure at the QOZB level? Maybe you can walk us through the pros and cons of structuring a QOZB as an LLC versus a C Corp versus an S Corp. So this is where it gets a little bit more complicated and where you the, it allows for a lot more creativity um, to be able to even further take advantage of the incentive that's offered through this program. So typically on a startup or in another company or especially a real estate company, you're probably going to want your QOZB to be an LLC. Namely, because there's a lot of there's usually a lot of depreciation and or expenses that happen inside of the vehicle that will ultimately be able to get passed back up to the investors, and you want to be able to take advantage of passing those losses through to them. For an entity and for a business, so case in point, the acquisition of an operating business that you're going to move into the zone which we're actually doing a lot of. And I think that that's going to be one of the places where this Opportunity Zone legislation really uh, hits the gas, is that in those instances, if they're actually making money from day one, you're really going to want to look hard at the possibility of setting that QOZB up as a C-corporation because of the availability of tax arbitrage and the ability to be able to pay 21% at the C-corp level as opposed to what's typically a 39% tax rate that your investors are going to pay as you pass through those profits through a pass-through entity. Because those are, those are taxed as ordinary income. You're talking about just cash flow tax as ordinary income. We're, we're, we're not talking about capital gains at this point. Is that right? Correct. And so as that it gets taxed at ordinary income rates, if you've got cash flow from day one and you've got the ability to be able to reinvest that cash flow into additional qualified opportunity zone business property, you get the benefit of this C-Corp arbitrage where you're paying 21% instead of 39%. And so you can effectively take that 18% differential and invest it into more qualified opportunity zone business property that allows you to then build the cash flow inside of the C-Corp. And it's a bit of a snowball effect. And so it gets into this concept of the that what the IRS has really created for people here is a self-directed super Roth IRA. And so and, and the reason why it's you know the reason why it's a super Roth IRA is because it's tax advantaged money that's going into a tax-free vehicle that grows tax-free other than the income and the appreciation is growing tax-free. And it's a Roth because 
When you take it out on the back end, it's coming once again tax-free. And on top of all of that, you can do it with your own company or your own real estate where there's not related party lockouts. So within a self-directed super Roth IRA, what are you going to want to do? Are you going to want to take cash flow out of that and, you know, and live off of it or try to figure out what to do with it or put it into a bank account? Or are you going to want to leave it in that IRA and let it eat behind the tax veil and in building additional cash flow that's growing behind the tax veil and growing tax-free that you're ultimately able to be able to take out tax-free. And that's what happens when you create and when you use a C-Corp at the QOZB level. Now, there's obviously lots of factors to consider that are, you know, that are situationally specific based upon the type of business that, you know, may drive that conversation. But from a, um, a big picture kind of creative standpoint, having, it, having that C-Corp down at the QOZB level allows you to take advantage of what I've dubbed and what I've termed the self-directed super Roth IRA. So, you know, it, within that same conversation, if you use the QOZB as a C-Corp, what it also allows you to do is to take advantage of Section 1202 and having that, uh, that C-Corp serve as qualified small business stock, which under section 1202 of the code, if you hold that for five years and it's under a 10x return and under $50 million worth of growth, then you can effectively sell that stock tax-free after five years. So it becomes a time mitigator for a rapidly growing company. So for a high growth venture, that's, uh, you know, has the potential to really, really scale quickly, where you're concerned about, you know, having to hold it for 10 years, this allows you to drop that down to five years and effectively be able to accomplish the same thing from a tax standpoint of the step up in basis to fair market value after the 10 year hold. Right. So it kind of lets you achieve that opportunity zone tax benefit after five years instead of 10 years. That was section 1202. Uh, and then, yeah, the 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 concept of this being a super Roth IRA kind of gets you thinking. Instead of you know, how long do I have to hold this? Geez, ten years sounds like a really long time. You know, possibly you should be thinking, how long can I hold this? How long can I keep this this money in and and uh, let this investment eat, as you as you put it? I, I like that uh, that analogy. So, and the answer is twenty forty seven, right? So the twenty forty seven back end deadline. You can hold it up till 2047 and let it continue to snowball and continue to multiply and ultimately have it come out in the form of that super Roth IRA. And so, agreed. And I've been, and, and I think it's nothing short of amazing of what the authors of this legislation were able to do in such, you know, a, a finite amount of, you know, language that they put in in creating this. Because I think that it really has the potential to not only shift capital's mindset relative to being willing to go into areas that it heretofore hasn't been interested in, but also to be able to shift that mindset of, okay, how quickly can I turn my money to how quickly or how long can I hold my money into one of these deals? And I think that that's what's been missing within kind of the American capital structure, particularly within venture capital. And within growth capital that's in, uh, investing into small businesses is this patient money mindset. 
Because a patient money mindset's then looking at, okay, it's looking at big picture, macroeconomic stuff, as opposed to, you know, flashes in the pan that we're typically really focused on. And so when you have the ability to be able to do that, that's when you have the ability to really make impact and really move the needle, not just in these areas, but I think from an American economic standpoint as a whole. And so... I mean, as you can tell, I'm really excited about it. And, I, you know, my hat's off to the guys that, that got this through. And I really, really hope that it, it, it gets the traction that it deserves. And so, um, we're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with it. Oh, you're excited about it as you should be. I think, uh, I, I think a lot of us are. I think everybody listening is probably pretty excited about this. I know I'm excited about it as well. So if, if I'm a business owner and I know that I want to start up a business in an opportunity zone, or I know I want to move my existing business into an opportunity zone, is there any downside to structuring my organizing documents as a QOZB? I mean, does that lock me into certain capital requirements or or is, is there really no downside to doing so? So if you're structuring just as a QOZB, there's literally, I mean, all you have to do, you have to, you know, you have to comply with the, the ramifications of the, you know, of having 70% of your assets inside of the opportunity zone. And then, you know, the income test as well that we talked about on the first show that, you know, or those that four part test about your hours worked or the amount that you're paying, that kind of thing. And you would have to comply with that, but that's only if you receive capital. If you don't receive capital from an investor that needs to be able to certify that all of this is happening, if you just want to set yourself up as a QOZB, you could certainly do that. And then you could, you're there and positioned um, you know, to be that if somebody wants to invest into you. But from an operational standpoint, there's nothing that the QOZB has to file or comply with unless they've received qualified opportunity fund money that's looking for the associated tax you know, incentive. And so to answer your question, no, there's, there's really no downside uh, other than, you know, you just have to kind of do it on the front end. And if you do it, you're going to want to make sure that you've you know, ran the business as a QOZB if you're interested in attracting capital. But ultimately, if you decide that, you know, that it's not for you or that your business plan changes, if you haven't taken on any uh, opportunity zone capital, then you can certainly pivot. Now, that's a substantially different um, answer if you take on, you know, qualified investor capital uh, that is, you know, looking for that, the qualified opportunity zone tax incentive, then you would have to continue on as a qualified opportunity zone business for so long as the investors were involved. Right. And then at that point, you do have some compliance issues that you, that you need to comply with. In part one, we were talking about qualified opportunity funds, and we went through some compliance issues at the fund level. I think you've already touched upon some of the compliance issues at the QOZB level, the seventy percent asset test. But what other compliance issues should business owners or real estate developers who are setting up QOZBs be aware of? So, in addition to the seventy percent test, there's a fifty percent income test that's uh, that's necessary as well. And that 50% income test has, uh, there's three ways that you can comply with that. And the, there, the first one is the number of hours that, uh, that you pay your employees, that, uh, that those number of hours, the 50% of those number of hours are worked inside of a zone. Or 
that 50% of your aggregate payroll and consultant spend is done inside of a zone. Uh, the third one is that, uh, you know, that all your uh, equipment and your management team home run to a zone. So think in your mind, like landscape company that, uh, that goes out to cut grass outside of the zone, but then all of the equipment comes back to roost in the opportunity zone. And so that's going to, that's one of the really important things that, that people, uh, are, that they need to be focused on from a compliance standpoint of, you know, delivering that, uh, level of making sure that they're, you know, in compliance with the statute. These are a couple of the things that they need to pay attention to. Got it. Yeah. And it's obviously not enough to just go out and get a PO box that happens to have a, uh, uh, qualified opportunity zone address, right? Like you actually need, to, I think that's the, that's the whole point of this rule is you need to have a, a very real physical presence in one way or another in an opportunity zone and make an economic impact in, in these low income communities. Yeah. And this kind of goes into the audit trail piece too, right? Is that the more, you know, dialed in paperwork that you have that you can show to document this, the better off you're going to be. So I think that you know, one of the best practices in this case to kind of prove out that 50% test would be to actually have your employees log in or be able to show and to have a paper trail that documents where they're actually working from, uh, whether that's a GPS located, you know, time tracking device or, you know, uh, their, you know, an IP address kind of tracker thing as well that, that uh, pulls that information. And so, um, it's another little business, uh, it's a little business model for somebody to come up with is a method for how you track your employees time, <laughs> time and location. And so you can really present a defensible argument or defensible case for complying with that, that physical component where you're located. Yeah. Maybe that's the next, uh, maybe that's the next phase of OZ pros for you, Jimmy. Maybe, maybe, uh, well, Ashley, this has been great. This kind of wraps up the end of our two-part conversation here. So to recap for our listeners out there today, Ashley and I have set up ozpros.com where you can create your own qualified opportunity fund today for an affordable price. Maybe you've enjoyed this conversation today between me and Ashley, and maybe you're considering working with us. Of course, we would love to work with you. So whenever you're ready to get started with us on creating your own Opportunity Zone fund or Qualified Opportunity Zone business, your first step is to schedule your Opportunity Zone strategy call with Ashley. This is a paid call, and current pricing for the call is available at ozpros.com. During your initial phone call with Ashley, he will discuss anything you want regarding Opportunity Zones. He can talk you through your entity structuring options and determine your need for legal counsel. This initial brainstorming call is really designed to answer any questions you may have about forming your own Qualified Opportunity Fund or Qualified Opportunity Zone business so that you can move forward with confidence. To get started, visit ozpros.com and schedule your strategy call today. We look forward to hearing from you. Ashley, anything else to add about OZ Pros before we, uh, before we call it a day here? You know, I think that it's really cool that this website exists and it's an ability and it's an opportunity for people to be able to get forms and to uh, be able to take a run at this. And I'm really hoping that it uh, serves to, you know, to further get this program in practice. 
kind of to that end, what we've been talking about this whole time and our overall overriding goal within this whole process that we're trying to create, we're really trying to make this accessible and we really want to answer people's questions and try to get them moving uh, in, in getting off the sidelines and getting into the zone uh, and getting, you know, capital flowing into the zone. So if I need to jump on a phone call to, you know, to make that happen, I'm happy to do so. And, uh, you know, would love to talk with anybody that, uh, that, that wants to. Um, but once again, I will caution people that if their deal has any kind of hair on it or if it is outside the box in any way or if they've got any questions about how to keep track of it and that kind of thing, that they really, really need to get professional counsel. And obviously, we'd love to do that for them. But if it's not from us, get it from someone. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, some of this, some of this stuff is is a layup. It's pretty easy to to set one of these up. You just need a little bit of guidance, and that's what our our document generation tool provides. But if, as you stated, if uh, if there's a little bit more complexity to it, then yeah, definitely get in touch with an attorney um, or get in touch with us through our website ozpros.com. We offer that service as well. That's the done for you package. You can find that on our website as well. Uh, Ashley, this has been great. Thanks for chatting with me today. And uh, we'll probably get you back on the podcast soon at some point down the road here. Always a pleasure, Jimmy. Always a pleasure. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund Investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.